The advice and informational content does not necessarily represent the views of Mother's Market and Kitchen. Mother's recommends consulting your health professional for your personal medical condition. Hello, I'm Kimberly King, and welcome to the Mother's Market Podcast, a show dedicated to the truth, beauty, and goodness of the human condition. On today's show, every time we eat out, our digestive system has to break down the food, and sometimes we can have gastrointestinal issues depending on if the food didn't agree with us. Listen close and find out solutions to common GI problems, and later we'll tell you what's going on around town. But first up, we're joined today by another prominent physician when it comes to alternative medicine. Dr. Alan Sawson is the founder and medical director of the Institute for Progressive Medicine. He's been practicing medicine for over 40 years. His institute treats people of all ages through comprehensive state-of-the-art new medicine techniques, and we welcome him back to the Mother's Podcast. Dr. Sawson, how are you doing? I'm good, Kim. How are you doing? Great. It's great to have you here. Thanks. So today we're talking about difficult GI cases. And so, Dr. Sawson, are GI problems common? Well, gastrointestinal problems are the single most common reasons for doctors to be seen by patients. Really? It's number one on that long list of why do I go to a doctor. Mm. And I, I mean, it must be so uncomfortable to have those symptoms, but it really, it affects everything in our body, doesn't it? It does. It affects everything, you know, and it's, uh, for instance, how do you tell stomach pain from heart pain? Because they're right next to each other. Mm. A lot of times people have chest pain and they think it's the heart and they get this full evaluation and they get a cardiac catheterization and there's nothing wrong with your heart. Something else is going on. Then they start to look at the stomach. That's probably the best way to do it is to deal with the heart first and deal with the stomach second. But a lot of things that go on in the abdomen, you know, are, may, may radiate to other locations. You could have a gallbladder problem that gives you shoulder pain. Yeah, you can have a pancreas problem that gives you back pain. Yeah. So these things, you know, tend to radiate to different locations. And the abdomen is like the core of the whole body. So it can affect just about any other part in the body. That is interesting that that is the number one problem. What are, so the conditions, you mentioned just the, the pain, I would imagine the discomfort, but what are there other um, conditions? I think the thing I see the most is probably reflux. <clears throat> which is stomach acid going up into the esophagus and causing irritation in the esophagus. The esophagus doesn't like acid. Mm. It's not supposed to be there. So there's a um, little protection between the stomach and the esophagus, and if that little protective area isn't working, uh, the valve opens up and the acid comes up, which usually makes it worse after a big meal or at night when you're sleeping and lying flat, so the acid tends to go up. I've had that too. It isn't bothering me now because I'm better about what I eat and how I eat. Uh, but it can be really annoying to be, you know, tasting uh, acid in your mouth. And sometimes people actually aspirate that. So once it gets into your mouth, you can inhale it into your, into your lungs. And that can be a cause of pneumonia. Mm. So it's one of the things to look for in someone who is especially an older person who's repeatedly getting respiratory infections. They may be aspirating from reflux. It's one of the things that GI people, gastrointestinal experts, look at. And some patients have cough. You know, they're going to the I have a cough, I have a cough, I have a cough. Nobody can fix me. What's you know, what's it coming from? That could be reflux also. So acid is very irritating to any tissue that it will hit. 
And if it hits the larynx, if it hits the vocal cords, you're going to have a cough. So a lot of gastroenterologists will empirically put their patients on acid blockers to reduce the acid production and see if the cough gets better. And a lot of times it does. But then you have to go after, you know, why is this really happening? If the person's drinking alcohol, it increases reflux. If they drink a lot of coffee, it increases reflux. If they're drinking caffeinated teas or Coca-Colas, it's worsening reflux. If they're overweight, it's worsening reflux. Because obesity is a, you know, it's not just obesity, it's just being overweight. It's putting pressure on the abdomen and forcing acid up out of the stomach into the esophagus. So those are the things we, we look at and what we like to deal with. So you mentioned some of that you adjusted your diet. Are there foods to stay away from? You mentioned some of the um, drink, you know, co- uh, coffee, alcohol. Yeah, and spicy foods, that's a big one. And large meals is another big one. You know, we really should not be eating a big meal for dinner at all. But the other thing is not to go to bed until two or three hours after you've eaten dinner. Some people come home after a long day at work and I'm hungry and I'm going to bed. <laughs> and that's what they do. And then they wake up with reflux because, you know, they've been lying flat in bed and uh, the acid will get up there. Let your food digest. Let your food digest, mm-hmm. right. Um, so can you talk to me about uh, what is celiac disease? Celiac disease is gotten pretty popular the last few years. It used to be considered rare. It actually affects supposedly 1% or 2% of the population. So about one person in 100 or 50 has celiac disease, which is an outright allergy to gluten, which is a protein that's in wheat. So these people will get abdominal pain, they'll get bloating, they may get diarrhea, they may get vomiting, they may get headaches. Migraine can be an effect of gluten allergy. Uh, So there's a lot of systemic effects that can occur. Joint pain can also occur. Um, Schizophrenia can also occur. So yeah, a gluten allergy can be systemic in effect. So it's something to look for. And I keep trying to tell myself, if you see anybody whose brain isn't working right, Get a test for gluten allergy because it's easy to do. And if they yeah. have it, you're just going to stop it. So when you get that test, can you talk about, is it the one? It's just a, a basically it's a blood test. Okay. Uh, and you're looking for something called tissue transglutaminase antibody. It's a long word. I was going to say just common spelling. On yeah, it's just an antibody against, against gluten. And if the person has that antibody, you know, they're, they have celiac disease, even if they're asymptomatic. And people can be asymptomatic until they're 60 years old. They may not know they have it. Or if they have tummy aches, they don't know why they have it. So they, they don't get detected until they're much older. So I've seen people like that. I have one patient whose uh, celiac disease was discovered because they had iron deficiency anemia. So inflammation of the gut can cause bleeding. So you're losing iron and you don't know it. And then you, you get anemic and you have iron deficiency. And some smart naturopath picked this up on this lady and said, oh, we got to test you for celiac disease, which is what she had. And that was the only find, that was the only symptom. Some people have lots of symptoms and some people have very few symptoms. You can have joint pain that's quite severe as a consequence of celiac disease. There was an interesting article recently. I read about a a kid with Down syndrome. He was like uh, 15 years old. And he started acting out or he was just misbehaving badly with his parents. They didn't know what to do. And the kid's getting put on more and more psychiatric drugs. Mm -hmm and not getting better, and then ended up in the office of a smarter doc mm-hmm. who tested the kid for celiac disease, which is what he had, and they took the 
gluten away, which is basically wheat, rye, and barley. And the kid got better, didn't need any psychiatric drugs. He was fine. But a whole bunch of other physicians did not pick it up. And I read up on that a little bit more, and what I'm reading is that about 15% of children with Down syndrome have celiac disease. Wow. So you would think, that should be an automatic. Sure. If you've got Down syndrome, do the test. It's just a blood test. It used to be they would do an endoscopy and put a tube down into the stomach and take a biopsy because there's biopsy findings with celiac disease that are fairly typical. But if you can just do a blood test and avoid anesthesia and the procedure and the discomfort, it's a lot easier. So I've ordered many of those things. And every once in a while, somebody's positive. And then what do you do? Take them off of gluten. It's the only treatment that there is. Uh, a lot of people have gluten sensitivity without having celiac disease. So it's not an exact allergy, but they don't do well with it. So what do they get? They get gas, they get bloating, they may get diarrhea, they may get nausea. And I've heard from a number of patients who have been to Europe and come back here that when they were in Germany or Italy, they had no problem whatsoever eating the bread. When they came back here and went back to the bread, they got sick. So there's something we're putting in our bread versus what they're not. Apparently the wheat crop is not what it used to be. Mm -hmm. And they're growing wheat that's three feet high instead of eight feet high. So they had genetic modifications mm -hmm. and maybe something in that process has altered the effect on the body. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah, so you talked about what those side effects, or not side effects, but uh, the symptoms would be. So, yeah, you mentioned the bloating and the gas, diarrhea, headaches, nausea. Is there anything? Oh, you said joint pain, too, which is kind joint of... Joint pain, yeah. and emotional changes, irritability, mm. et cetera. And I, you know, I mentioned mental illness mm -hmm. can be a consequence of gluten allergy. Hmm. And that's what the manifestation was in the kid with Down syndrome. You know, his, mentally, he was not up to snuff. He wasn't what he used to be. Wow. Do um, antibiotics help or hinder? Antibiotics are a different kind of problem. You know, what's come out more and more because antibiotics are so overused uh, is that they can alter the function of the gut. The gut has something called a microbiome. These are billions of bacteria living mostly in your large intestine that provide health benefits. So they help prevent abnormal pathogenic bacteria and viruses from passing through the wall of the gut and getting into your system and making you sick. Uh, they maintain health, but if you alter that balance of the bacteria within the gut, you can create lots of problems. Then you have the wrong things growing and not enough of the good things growing, and the gut gets leaky. Mm. So toxins can pass through the wall of the intestine again into the systemic circulation and make the person sick. How does he make them sick? Chronic illness, chronic fatigue, loss of energy, anemia, you know, you name chronic symptoms, and that's right in the middle of it. So we should be doing things to protect the microbiome, one of which is to stay away from antibiotics unless we absolutely need them. But the majority of antibiotics given out in this country were un are unnecessary. Hmm. Patient sick goes into the doc, says, I had this cold for three weeks, you got to give me something. And the doctor says, well, okay. Take some erythromycin or take some ampicillin or whatever. Well, it probably isn't going to help their infection any. And for two, it's going to screw up the gut because hmm. they all kill the good, some of the good bacteria. So a lot of folks these days are taking what's called probiotics, which is good bacteria. We usually recommend folks who are taking antibiotics to take some probiotics 
along with it, not at the same time of day, but two or three hours apart. So they're replenishing the good bacteria within the gut and trying to maintain things. So a question about probiotics. Um, so not at the same time if they've been um, issued the antibiotics, but should we be taking probiotics daily or just only when we're feeling sick? A lot of people take them daily. And again, if you're dealing with a chronic gastrointestinal problem, uh, you might want to have that person on maintained on probiotics. You know, some people have ulcerative colitis. Some people have other conditions in the gut um, that would benefit from that. And you can actually do testing on the stool. So you collect the stool specimen, send it to a laboratory, and they'll send you an answer in two weeks of what, what's in the stool. You know, what's, what's growing in there? What are the bacteria? Are there any good ones, bad ones? Are there any, uh, any fungus growing in there? That can all be evaluated. And we do it a lot, a lot of the time. Well, that's good too. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what uh, really quickly on the probiotics? Are they supplements that you recommend, or is there any way to get yeah, probiotics through food? There's a lot of different ones being made. Okay. You know, the numbers are going up all the time, so you can get a probiotic capsule with 20 billion in it. Mm. You know, it didn't used to be that high. We have one that's in a in a pouch that has 200 billion in it. Wow. So. I don't know what the best number is. I think it's, it's variable. But generally, folks who have had treatments, abdominal surgery, almost always they get antibiotics with it. Uh, other situations where they're given antibiotics, if you want to prevent gut problems, it's good to take probiotics. There's another infection that can occur often as a consequence of antibiotics called Clostridium difficile. And that is a, an infection within the gut by an organism that causes a lot of problems, mostly pain and diarrhea. Hmm. And it's really common. It happens a lot in hospitals. Uh, it's highly communicable, so a guy in, in one bed can get it from the guy in the next bed without even touching him. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it can get spread around. And I've seen people die from it. It's, it's a pretty serious infection, which antibiotics of a different type, like uh, vancomycin is the one that's often used, can, can get rid of it but it can come back again. And there's new treatments that are out there with fecal implants you may have read about. So they take actually feces from a volunteer, someone who's been tested to make sure that what he's producing is the good stuff. And they make capsules out of these and they have the patient swallow them or they can put it in rectally. You Sorry can't to see tell my you face all this. right now, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, really? I have never heard of that before. This and is the new medicine, you know? Oh yeah. my, how did they come up with something like that? I don't even want to know. Really? And it how works. Is, it works. It? Yeah. Wow. It works. <laughs> Next time, I dare you to go to your doctor and ask about a fecal implant. Interesting. Well, okay. Um, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. We've learned a lot and maybe TMI. Dr. Sawson, stay with us. We'll be right back. Looking for healthier snack options? Mother's Market sources organic and non-GMO small batch, high quality, great tasting nuts, dried fruits, snacks, and candy. The goal? To provide you the highest in quality snacks while also offering high nutritional value. Fan favorites include non-GMO peanut butter pretzel bites, organic dried mango slices, and organic dark chocolate peanut clusters. Stop into your local Mother's Market today to explore all the varieties and pick some up to try for yourself. Let's talk menstruation, perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause. These shouldn't be taboo topics. They're the normal life phases we move through as women. And Solaray delivers support every step of the way with her life stages. 
The first-of-its-kind, comprehensive new supplement line offers doctor-formulated solutions at each stage with clinically-backed ingredients you can count on. Own the stage. Buy Solaray at Mother's Market today. Welcome back to the Mother's Market Podcast. And we want to remind you that if you missed any portion of today's show, you can find us on iTunes by searching Mother's Market or download the show from our website, mothersmarket.com. Click the link for podcast and listen to past shows. Plus, download our healthy recipes and money savings coupons, all available at mothersmarket.com. And now back to our interview with Dr. Sawson. And we've been talking about difficult GI cases. And some very interesting information uh, before we broke. But can we talk about what are the most uh, allergenic foods? Right. Well, we do testing for this fairly often. Basically, you draw some blood and send it off and look for antibodies against different foods, usually 100 or 150 different foods. There's a number of companies that will, will do that testing. The ones that turn out to be most significant um, are eggs and dairy. Nuts and seeds can be, fish can be, fruits and vegetables usually not. So those have been the safest, the safest foods. Uh, I haven't really tended to see reactions against meat uh, or chicken. Those, but eggs oftentimes is, is an issue for folks. And dairy is frequently a big issue for folks. So and a lot of these things don't show up on the blood study. The test that we normally do is what's called an IgG antibody, uh, which a lot of doctors don't even believe in, but we believe in it. What, what is that, the IgG antibody? IgG is an antibody that uh, relates to inflammation. Hmm. Uh, most doctors, especially dermatologists, are testing for something called IgE antibody, which is an antibody that's related to asthma and skin rashes like hives, urticaria. People get itching, and that's what they usually test for frequently with a skin test because it will create a wheel on the skin. Mm-hmm. IgG doesn't do that, so if you want to find that one out, you have to do a blood test for it. And that's one we oftentimes work with, especially in patients coming in with uh, gastrointestinal problems, pain, uh, or just chronic fatigue and malaise because something going on in your gut can make you tired, and you don't know what's making you tired. So it could be that, and things that we find person has high antibody levels against eggs and oftentimes dairy. I say, stop those two foods. Let's see what happens. And a lot of folks do get better. You say, well, you, do you really need that test? Well, maybe you don't. You know, a person coming, I don't want to do a test. Just tell me what to do. I say, well, stop the eggs, stop the dairy, stop the gluten, stop the sugar. Let's see what happens. Most patients will improve. Hmm. And I don't know whether it's because of an allergy problem or some sort of other chemical intolerance or what. But a lot of people who stay away from those kinds of foods get improvements. So and they you, lose weight. <laughs> oh, I'm all for that. <laughs> but you just mentioned something about the difference between that IgG antibody blood test versus the IgE. That's the skin wheel. My, um, I, a question, my husband, uh, whenever he has a certain type of oil, um, like through chips or crackers or whatever, he will start, uh, it gets right into his esophagus and he'll start coughing and can't. So he had had that skin test, and it didn't show anything for that. So would he be a candidate for that IgG antibody, the blood test on that? Well, that kind of symptom should be an IgE symptom because the throat's bothered, breathing and talking are bothered. So that's more of an IgE symptom. Hmm. And maybe they just didn't pick the right thing to test him with. I mean, there's oils and there's oils. And was this a modified oil in some way? Was it 
did it become rancid? You know, was it cooked in some way? And maybe the chemistry of it was changed. Hmm. So yeah. the test isn't always going to show you. That's really interesting. You have to really do some research. Uh, what, what about, we've talked about this before, I know, sugar. How bad is sugar? Sugar's bad. Mm. I mean, it's wonderful, but it's bad. I know. You yeah. know I, I have a, a sugar problem as well, like half the population does. It's my addiction, and, uh, yeah. It really needs to be restricted because it, it leads to an enormous health problems. You know, sugar is calorically intense uh, and it doesn't reduce your appetite. So you could be eating lots of sugar and go out and have a nice big steak and potatoes with it. So sugar is, is not really satisfying in the sense of making you feel full. Uh, and, you know, it raises the blood sugar. It makes you weigh more and weighing more raises your blood sugar. So it leads to obesity. Uh, that leads to high blood pressure. Sugar itself, you know, increases the risks for diabetes and makes diabetes more difficult to control. And we see this over and over and over again. There are patients who come in who are really trying to do something and they actually do change their diet and they change what they're eating and their blood sugars come down and they get off medication. Some people can even get off insulin. A lot of people who are on insulin really shouldn't need to be on it. But again, it requires lifestyle changes. So that's, you know, doesn't, isn't necessary as much. And nowadays, just like with the uh, gluten-free and sugar-free, I mean, they have, they do have uh, alterations, but it seems like there's sugar in everything. You really have to. Yeah, well, gluten-free usually means full of sugar. Oh, oh, is that what that is? <laughs> that's a good, oh boy. So, I'm in trouble now. It huh? doesn't always... <laughs> Doesn't always work. Oh, really? You have to. <laughs> you have to pick the right items. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You have to read the labels and see how much sugar is in this, and what are they putting in here, and etc. So I think I may have asked you this before, but what are some other hidden names for sugar that you may see on ingredients that doesn't say sugar on it? Well, high fructose corn syrup is a big one. It's probably the biggest one. There's a lot of alternatives to sugar that are being used now that really aren't bad for you. So erythritol. Uh, some of these other uh, alcohol sugars, they call them. They don't make you drunk, but there's an altered sugar that doesn't tend to be absorbed and used in the body. Xylitol uh, is probably a good one, but it does get used in the body. But xylitol helps to suppress bacterial growth, especially when it's in your toothpaste. It keeps you from getting decay. Mm -hmm. So xylitol, I think, is a pretty good sugar. Um, but those are the ones that kind of come to mind. What about um, agave? Agave is, is, is a very nice tasting sugar. It's a nice <laughs> it's tasting very, sugar, but it doesn't mean that's good it's for very you. Very sugar. <laughs> it's okay. And Agave so is molasses sugar. and and so is uh, honey. Honey, yeah. Honey is, you know, a, a wonderful sugar. Mm, no matter how you slice it, it's sugar. Um wow. That's this is sad for me, but anyway, it is true. <laughs> what about um stevia? Stevia is fine. It's not sugar. Some people like it. I don't care for the taste of it very much, so I don't use it. Because it's not sugar. Because it's not sugar, <laughs> because you know. you can taste that, right. But it's, it's quite safe. Okay. I think it's a good substitute. That's good to know. Um, switching gears a little bit, what is the microbiome? The microbiome is the population of bacteria within the gut, meaning large intestine. And our bodies contain several trillion of these bacteria, so folks have said there's more cells within your gut than in the whole rest of your body. Mm. So these mm. are trillions of cells, and 
there should be a, a good population mix in there of lactobacillus, bifidobacter, those are the generally the good names. Uh, but there can be other bacteria that get in there that can be pathogenic, meaning they cause disease. Hmm. So certain types of E. coli, and you probably read about them where people eat in some restaurant and the food is contaminated with a certain type of E. coli and they go into renal failure. Hmm. So, you know, that's coming from the gut. That's that bacteria getting into the gut and then creating problems from the gut on through. It creates permeability in the gut, toxins get through and affect the rest of the body. Hmm. Well, that's an amazing um, statistic about having all of these in our gut. You know, that seems to be the largest. Um, What supplements do you use for the GI tract? Well, we have one for, one we use mostly for reflux is a combination of aloe vera, glutamine, and licorice. I'm not going to mention any brand names, but you can get different items with those items in them. And those are the ones we like to use for reflux. It can also help with stomach inflammation like gastritis. Um, Probiotics we use a lot. Um, There's some other ones usually containing glutamine. Glutamine is an amino acid that is the major food for the cells lining the intestines. So it's, it's a very good thing to be taking if you have gut problems. So most of the items that we use to treat people with, with uh, bowel disease have glutamine in them. We've been using ozone a fair amount over the last few years uh, because ozone reduces inflammation and kills bacteria and viruses. You can treat infections and inflammation with ozone. And what I mean for the gastrointestinal tract is rectal. So you put a little tube uh, through the anus and you push this ozone, which is a gas, uh, from a syringe into the gut. And we put in somewhere between 150 and 200 cc's and it stays in there. As soon as it hits the gut, it goes in all kinds of different directions, but it helps to restore balance and it helps to reduce inflammation. And I've seen especially ulcerative colitis uh, get better substantially better using rectal ozone. And then, so that process that you just described with the ozone, um, rectal ozone, what, how long does that take to um, take effect and then also for a recovery on that? Yeah, ozone? procedure takes about 15 minutes. There's not much to it. You just lie on a table and somebody puts, puts it in through a little tube. Um, improvements I've seen in, in three or four weeks, which would be quick, you know, three and four months, which should be more average probably. And we do other things with it. These people are taking glutamine. Their diets have all been changed. They're off alcohol. They're off caffeine. Those are all, those are bad for the gastrointestinal tract. And they're off sugar, which is always bad for the gut. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we've seen some really nice responses with, with, with uh, ulcerative colitis. Do you have, um, I, I think, I don't know your answer, um, geared toward, you know, anything that's fresh, vegetables and, and fruits, but just kind of an overall health um, recommendation for our diets. With, you know, di- there's dairy, there's gluten, there's no sugar and all of that. But if we were to just streamline it and say, what would you recommend for a daily diet? Yeah, well, I'd get organic foods as much as possible. My breakfast is, is a smoothie. So I'll oh. take vegetables and some fruits, a little bit of banana and some blueberries and a couple of dates, but I mix it in with protein powders, some of which are good for the gut that have the glutamine in them and some other things. And that's my breakfast. I drink it on the way to work every weekday. It's probably my best meal of my life. <laughs> um, I 
think we don't have enough water. People need to drink a lot more water. The older you get, the less is the sense of thirst. So people who get older tend to get more dehydrated, which creates a lot of other problems, including constipation. Mm. So organic foods, fresh foods, you know, don't put something in the fridge for three days and then eat it. Mm. Doesn't make sense. And it's probably not safe. And I wouldn't eat in restaurants very often. You know, once or twice a week really should be about it. Some people go for lunch every day because, mm-hmm. you know, they just don't have other arrangements. But I usually take last night's dinner to work with me, and that's what I have for lunch the next day. You know, I, I don't even feel like I have the time to go to a restaurant, which I wouldn't do anyway. It's not what I think is right. Um, so we need organic-type foods. We need... Foods from, you know, if you're going to eat animal-based foods, they should be animals that have been, you know, well taken care of and not closed into a small space. You know, if you're going to have beef, it should be from animals that are pasture-raised. It's a much healthier food. And that's um, that's great advice there. Uh, thank you so much. This has been very interesting food for thought, Dr. Sassen, and we look forward to having you on again. But in the meantime, you can catch more of Dr. Sassen on his website, iprogressivemed.com and learn more about his passion for alternative medicine and other great things he's involved with. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. Thanks for listening to the Mother's Market podcast and for shopping at Mother's Market. The advice and informational content does not necessarily represent the views of Mother's Market and Kitchen. Mother's recommends consulting your health professional for your personal medical condition.